We praise you, Father, for the Son that you have given. We praise you for his work of redemption and pray that as we strive to understand that work better and to grow in its light and to be changed by what you have revealed, I ask that you'd meet with us here and by your Holy Spirit continue to teach us the truth of your word. Give strength that is beyond human capacity. Give wisdom that is beyond our mind's grasp. And I pray that you would, by your mercy, allow us to labor faithfully in the Word and to understand it better in its context, its call upon our lives. And for those who know not Christ, we pray that you draw them to the light of saving faith in his name. It is through him that we pray. Amen. We come again to Hebrews 10 this morning, the first half of This chapter marks the theological pinnacle of the book. In verses 1 through 18, the author reaches the summit of his focus on the final high priestly sacrifice of Jesus Christ in the place of sinners. So the book presents Jesus as the mediator of a new covenant by which God now provides complete forgiveness of sins for his people. At verse 19, you'll notice there in chapter 10, you see the therefore, brothers, since we have confidence. And there are implications now that follow that are defined here in this chapter. And then notice verse 26 where the author begins uh, to uh, another section of warning for which the book is, is remembered. Now, then we come to chapters 11 through 13, and they inspire us to persevere in the faith as we look to the past and provide some practical exhortations about how to live our life as believers. But before delving into them, we're at that place of the book, before delving into these more inferential and practical considerations, we return today to soak for a while longer in the theological riches of this pinnacle of the book in chapter 10. And we do so today in preparation of our communion at the Lord's table. At this table, we look back to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ to pay the sentence of judgment that was rightly resting upon our heads in our sin. So we could say it this way, cast a cross The manger in which the swaddled Messiah lay nestled the night of his birth was, as it were, the shadow of a Roman cross. Jesus was born to save us from our sin, and that salvation was won by his sacrificial death. This is why he came, in part, and as a very central, significant focus of his his coming. So we gather at this table to remember this sacrifice But really the only reason that we can do so is because of the finality and the triumph of this conquest over sin. We do not look back to mourn. We look back and we rejoice because of this finality and this triumph. And we see these two themes in verses 12 through 14. So as we went through the uh, first 18 verses in one setting, we're coming back now to focus and soak here longer on what is being said in verses 12 and following. As we commune then at this table together, we come in the conviction, first of all, let us remember that Jesus' death was the single 
and final sacrifice for sin. The author has been pressing us to this point. It's critical to our Christian walk to understand this reality. But as we state that, as it's very clear in the text, I'd like to go behind the scenes and to build up the biblical context for this statement. The declaration that Christ's death provided the final and the decisive atonement for sin was not some speculative novelty that was proposed by the author here. God prepared his people rather for centuries to anticipate that Messiah would suffer for the salvation of his people. 700 years before Jesus died, Isaiah prophesied concerning the ultimate servant of the Lord, and we know this text very well, but as we think of the prophetic preparation, Isaiah the prophet says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. How this would work what this would look like, how this would be accomplished was not entirely clear. But it was clear that Messiah's life would be sacrificed in the place of those he came to save. It was clear that Messiah, uh, that Messiah would bear our sins in his body. This was clear 700 years before he comes. Now obviously the suffering Savior was not the kind of Messiah that Israel wanted. Israel sought a conquering king, a king that would break the chains of Roman oppression. They had little time for a Messiah who would bear the wrath of God against his people, whatever that meant entirely. The connection to the sacrificial system could not be missed here. And yet, how does a human being, how does the one that God sends accomplish this? It wasn't entirely clear. Nonetheless, no Israelite who paid any attention to the Holy Scriptures could miss the point, could they? That Messiah would bear the sins of his people. He would be pierced by God for them, whatever that meant. The prophetic preparation that we see for Messiah is steeped in sacrificial language. And that points us to the second aspect of preparation to this idea of Christ's single and final sacrifice, and that's the ritual prep preparation for it. 
We just take a, a short taste of it as we look to the book of Leviticus here and see that the Lord called Moses, spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering or livestock from the herd or from the flock. You notice there that the people are going to be very aware of this sacrifice. They're taking it from their own possession, their own flock, and bringing it to sacrifice. There's an involvement here that is unmistakable. Verse 3, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. There it is again. You bring that gift. You bring that offering. You select it. You get it there. You bring it to the place of sacrifice. That it might be accepted before the Lord. So you're going to have to come on his terms. Bringing this offering the way that he prescribes. And notice again verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. And it shall be acceptable for him to make atonement for him. So there is a, a bringing of the offering on the Lord's terms. And there's an identification with that sacrificial animal. A putting the hands on the head and feeling the life leave. We gain here just a glimpse of how the ritual system identified the worshiper with the animal of sacrifice, emphasizing that this was God's plan of atonement. This was the way that God would deal with sin in the life of the believer. And as we've seen, Hebrews makes much of the fact that these sacrifices were temporary. They were incomplete. They were incomplete because they had to be persistently repeated. Verse 11 of Hebrews 10. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Again and again and again these sacrifices. So travel back in your mind's eye and with the graphic model is all this is but it's probably pretty close to accurate. Go back in your mind's eye to the day when Joseph and Mary are striding across the vast courtyard of the temple with the infant Jesus in arms. They've come from Bethlehem to redeem their firstborn son by offering the prescribed sacrifice. Now think on this, as we think of the background. As they're coming, Israel has been doing this for 500 years. We talk, from the time that they came back from Babylon and established the temple again and began the worship there, some 500 years they've been bringing sacrifices to this place. For 500 consecutive years following that return, they had this visual reminder again and again every single day that the wages of sin is death. That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And further, as Joseph and Mary redeemed their son with that prescribed sacrifice, we may also note that the eyes of all Israel were upon them in a manner of speaking. You see, there was only one place of sacrifice. It had to be at the temple. You couldn't do this elsewhere. 
Well, obviously, there were Jewish people that lived throughout the world, and they could not come to the temple. And so synagogues were formed where the scriptures were read, and God's people would gather. But as they did, they sought to synchronize their worship with the temple at Israel, in Israel. So only one place where offerings could be offered, and violating God's law to offer animal sacrifices, they synchronized their gatherings to the worship of the temple. For example, they sought to pray the same ritualistic prayers that the priests at the temple were praying, and to do so at the same time, as far as was possible, with the spinning of the earth. And so they turned their eyes from afar to this place on Sabbath in their synagogues. This means that the heart of God's people were concentrated on the very site where Jesus was redeemed by a sacrifice as an infant and on the very place where sacrifices were offered the day that Jesus died. The concentration of his people throughout the world was on this place. 500 years of sacrifice since the return from Babylon are observed in obedience to the stipulations of the Mosaic Law, and there were many. We lack the time to consider those regulations in any detail here today. In fact, one of the reasons for our series through Leviticus some years back is to prepare us for Hebrews, that we would understand it better and perceive its teaching. But as we noted in that series through Leviticus, as we know from the sacrificial system, it fairly assaulted the senses. So we're talking about 500 years of preparation, the eyes of Israel upon this place, but also those who were here in this place, it assaulted the senses. It was very earthy. You touched it. You smelled it. You heard it going on around, the bleeding of the sheep and the goats, the mooing of the oxen, the cooing of the doves and pigeons, the roar of the altar's fire. You couldn't miss it. The senses had to be alive with sacrifice. Every morning and every evening, a year-old lamb having no defect was offered on the altar in the courtyard in front of the temple entrance. Just the average day. Any day. The forgotten days. A sacrifice in the morning, a sacrifice in the evening. And additionally, there were more sacrifices every Sabbath, every new moon, and for the three major festivals per year. Individual worshipers could bring sacrifices virtually any time that they chose. But at these three major festivals, the sacrificial offerings swelled in number. It overwhelmed the senses. It got people's attention. It had to. The most somber of observances was the Day of Atonement, which we've considered in days past in Leviticus chapter 16. But the most sacrifice-heavy festival was Passover, when the Jews celebrated God's deliverance from Egypt. Think of it. This is what they're celebrating. This is what they're remembering, is God's deliverance from Egypt. In the days of Jesus, every family group of no less than ten men, were to be represented by one man who came to the temple to sacrifice a lamb between 4 and 6 p.m. The worshipers were divided into three massive groups and were serviced by the priests in order. 
This is mind-numbing. But it's estimated that in Jesus' day, some 30,000 lambs were slaughtered in two hours. We're, we're not, I don't think we have any butchers here. But I don't know that you have to think too hard to figure out what that was like. 30,000 lambs in two hours. This did not include the many sacrifices made earlier in the day by pilgrims as well as the two young bulls, one ram, seven lambs, lambs, one male goat in addition to the regular daily sacrifices of the priests on this day. The hides of the animals were stripped off their carcasses. The bellies were slid open. The fat and internal organs were removed and burned. Priests lined up in rows with bowls to catch the blood of the animals, and they'd pass it down a line of priests, one bowl after another, and I'm sure sloshing a good bit along the way, on their robes, on the floor, passing bowl after bowl, and the last one in line would throw it up against the altar. Say 30,000 lambs, that's a lot of blood. It was so much so that they created two drains around the altar and poured the blood down those drains. They also, from cisterns and Solomon's pools, from 12 miles away, and aqueducts brought water into that area of the temple so that it could wash off the floor. And that water and blood mixture would flow from this area of sacrifice and down to the Kadron Valley below the temple area. And that creek would flow red with blood and water. In fact, we believe that on that night, Jesus stepped over that creek as it flowed red with blood. He joining the pilgrims that observed the Passover meal on Thursday a whole nother group observing the Passover on Friday so that Jesus walks across the Condrone over the bloody creek and then is crucified as animals are being slaughtered for Passover on Friday. And in accordance with Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 12, the altar's fire was to burn day and night perpetually. I may be ignorant, I don't know the history, but I've never read anywhere that that fire ever went out in those 500 years. The altar of sacrifice had to continue to burn. The animals had to be offered day after day, festival after festival. Animal sacrifices bearing the sins of God's people. You could not miss it. And that leads us then to the fulfillment. This is a book written to Hebrews. They're not unaware of this system whatsoever. They know all of this and they know what it means then when the author says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. They know what this means. It is against this backdrop that we consider again the significance here of verse 12 and also verse 14. 
For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering. Consider in the the background of these 500 years of all of these sacrifices, day after day, year after year. Think of what it meant when John the Baptist said, Here is the Lamb of God. who takes away the sin of the world. As the sacrifice, Jesus was flawless and innocent of sin. As the great high priest, Jesus served in the order of Melchizedek and offered the complete, wholly sufficient blood, not of bulls and goats, but of his own blood. And Jesus presented his death, bearing the guilt of sinners in the heavenly throne room, where he satisfied the holy and just anger of God against sinners. So let's bring to our thoughts another scene. Three crosses stand out prominently atop a rocky crag. Spiked to the center stake hangs the tortured and bleeding body of Messiah. Hours earlier on his way, having stepped across that cadrone, now the blood of animals flowing in the Passover sacrifice, Jesus hangs dying on the cross while priests are dumping bowl after bowl of blood into the drains at the altar. And as he laid down his life, As the final lamb of sacrifice, what did he say? What did he cry? It is finished. It was over. It was fulfilled. The final lamb bearing upon himself the sins of the world. It was finished. And the veil of the temple split. Where God's presence was hidden and veiled. Where access to his presence, they were reminded all the time of their sin and the inaccessibility of a holy God, that veil was torn and it was finished. The last lamb had borne the sins of his people, past, present, and future. He was the singular and final priesthood. His was the singular and final sacrifice, the final and fully sufficient payment for sin for all who trust in his gracious provision. I don't know if I speak to anybody here in this assembly, but I I may by recording or live stream or some other way you may be hearing these words. And some as you hear these words, you you may see yourself as a religious person. You're striving to please God, but you are doing so in a faith community that speaks of the ongoing sacrifice of Jesus every day in the Mass. That's the world you come from. That's the religious tradition that you are following. He is offered again and again and again For atonement. And that mass, that sacrifice of the body of Christ is overseen by a priest. 
by one who mediates between God and man, offering ongoing sacrifices to satisfy the wrath of God. If you are in such a system, if you are placing your trust in such a system, I just encourage you not to hear my words at this point, but just to hear Hebrews chapter 9, verse 25. Hebrews 9, verse 25. Christ appeared on our behalf. It's not to offer Himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself once for all. Chapter 10 Back to our passage, verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, for verse 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hear those words. Do you choose to be part of a system where Jesus is offered repeatedly? Do you choose to be part of a system where there is an ongoing priesthood? It seems very fair to say in light of these texts that that is to scorn Christ. Or as this first point makes very clear, his death was a single and final sacrifice for sin. But as we move on then, at the end of verse 12 and verse 13, we see secondly that Jesus' triumph is settled by his session at God's right hand, by his being seated there with authority. Verse 12 When he did this, offering this one final single sacrifice for sin, he sat down, verse 12 at the end, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He sat down. Forgive the personal illustration, but it just works so well for me. I hope it does for you, and if not, just dismiss it, but... I, I, years ago, I loved playing basketball, it's just not as fun as it used to be, but I loved to play the game and played for some years, and there were times when I was pulled out of a game and I had to sit down because I wasn't playing well. I had to sit down because I needed correction of what I was doing on the floor. There were other times when I was pulled from a game because I was winded or I'd grown weak and exhausted and the coach realized I needed to sit on the bench and catch my breath or recover. But I remember a tournament championship game. I'd played the whole game. I was pulled from the game at the end after our team's victory was assured. Wow, was that a different kind of sitting on the bench. You come out and the triumphs won. 
You sit down because the game's still going on, but the, the job is over. It's time to celebrate. It's time to savor the win. Not bench because of fatigue, could have kept playing, but just bench because the game was over. The job was done. It's in that kind of a sense that Jesus sits down. He's not exhausted. He hasn't failed. He sits down in triumph, in victory. The work is over. It is in this sense, then, that there's no more to do. He's triumphed over sin and Satan and death. We contrast this contextually with verse 11. Every priest stands... Daily, remember we said that last week, there's one thing in the furniture in the, in the tabernacle in the temple, there's one piece of furniture that wasn't there and that was a seat. You didn't sit down. You stood to do your work because you were doing your work and so every priest stands daily to bring the repeated sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ offered this one final sacrifice, he sat down. This great high priest is finished. And this is a theme, we didn't have time to look at our last time through, but this is a theme that we find the author of Hebrews is actually kind of toying with or stringing through the entire book. We go to Hebrews 1 as the book opens. Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the Father's right hand. These verses sound two major themes of the book, atonement and exaltation. Making purification for sins is sacrificial language, mirroring the life of an animal sacrifice in the place of sinners. So Jesus' sacrificial death provides the purification for God's people. And this sacrifice leads to what? He sat down in triumph. Contextually, as we go back to Hebrews 10, And 13, he's waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. A quotation of Psalm 110. Not, sit here, Jesus, while I conquer your enemies, but ancient kings symbolized their conquest of an enemy by placing a foot on the conquered king's neck as he prostrated himself before the victor. They weren't very nice people to those that they defeated, were they? But, I mean, where are you most relaxed, other than bed, perhaps? But, I mean, you sit in an easy chair and you put your feet up. It just feels good to have the feet up in the air, for most of us anyway. That's when you're relaxed. That's what the king was saying when he put his foot on the neck of a defeated foe. I'm totally at peace. I'm comfortable here. I've won. Now, there was a lot of pride and arrogance in it by man, but not by this king. The the enemies that he is vanquishing are those that would destroy his people and seek to destroy his glory. And so, waiting 
from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This speaks of the time of final completion of all that Christ has already won. I realize the analogy is weak in some ways, but in a sense, the game is over, but it's still being played. He's seated in victory, and the final buzzer will sound. And he will have defeated every foe, including death itself. The death blow has come. The final completion and fulfillment yet awaits. But, in principle, this conquest is already accomplished. We don't stand back and wait for this day to come somewhere as if Christ is not reigning. For as Peter said, He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers having been subjected to Him. They're already subjected to Him. Or Ephesians 1, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we do not get the sense that Christ is without power today, waiting until his enemies are put under his feet. They're there and they're not there. There's the already, there is the not yet. But let us come to this table today. And as we come to partake here and commune with God, with one another, in the victory of Christ, let us stand in this assurance. There is no power, there is no dominion, there is no ruler over whom Jesus does not reign supreme today. He's the victor. The Lord Christ reigns with sovereign power, with absolute authority over every spirit being, earthly authority, nation, person, and place. Battered Christians, let us never forget it. By his death and resurrection, he has conquered sin and Satan and death. And so he sat down in triumph in the highest position in the universe. By this sacrifice as the final high priest, Jesus now is the mediator of a new covenant between God and his people. And the author emphasizing the superiority of the new covenant in chapter 8. Notice how he begins this chapter. Now the point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, and he will go on to say, he mediates a new covenant and this high priest, though, is who is one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Here it is again, from chapter 1 to chapter 8. And from chapter 8, this one who makes intercession for us, 725, is seated in this position bearing witness of his triumph and leads practically here. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This means very practically 
But in our daily lives, our focus is to be in faith upon the seated Savior. He suffered an ignominious death, yet he is seated today as victor and Savior on the throne of the universe. This, as we see it in faith and trust it, this radically changes everything. As we live our lives, you know very well there's so much unsettledness. So many things that we do not know and understand. So many disappointments that we face in life. So much that is insecure and unknowing. But follower of Jesus Christ, you can always say this. The ultimate concern in life and death is settled. It's settled. No matter what moves about me, no matter what fails in my life, no matter what difficulty or trial is brought into our lives, Jesus is sitting. He's seated on the throne of the universe. It's all settled and finished from His standpoint. Victory is not a concern. The outcome is known. It's been done. And one beautiful day, our unsettled weakness and struggle will be put aside and we will synchronize fully with this seated Savior and His final victory. So the death of our Savior is the single and final substitutionary sacrifice for our sins is observed at this table that we now come around. We say in faith, He is seated. He has conquered. He is the final sacrifice for sin. We do not offer here an animal sacrifice. That sacrifice has been made. We do not crucify Jesus again. It was a once and done. But we gather here at this table to commune with the living Christ and with the body of believers in His death to redeem us from our destruction. Here we also commune in the presence of the seated Savior, whose work of redemption is complete and whose triumph is total. Here we remember the price that was paid for our salvation. And we rest assured here at this table in the one who cried, It is finished. And sat down. No more sacrifice is necessary because no more sacrifice is possible. And nothing more can be done to provide for or to secure our salvation. So whatever shaking, whatever is unsettled, we come to this table and we rest knowing it is finished. Father, as we come before your throne, as you have bid us to come on the authority of our Savior, we plead for his intercessory prayers that we would draw close, that we would draw near to you in this time. You have designed this table for us to commune with you and with one another as the body of Christ. And to the best of our ability, as well as we can understand the scriptures, we speak with authority that you have given us to say, it is finished. 
Jesus was the final, singular sacrifice for sin. And here we rejoice in the efficacy of that death. Here we celebrate in the presence of the seated Savior whose victories won. And so in a prophetic way, in a way that looks forward, we anticipate the final meal in your presence. We anticipate the day when all that is settled will be settled in our individual stories as well. Here at this place, we say this is who we are. This is where we stand. And I pray that you would draw us near. Through Christ we pray.